Uh, Father, it's good to laugh, and we thank you for fun stories and fun times, and we pray that as we look into the scriptures now that we would have joy and delight as we look at this really incredible run-on sentence that Paul wrote. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so we looked at this really incredible run-on sentence yesterday, and um, let's kind of put up um, what we had yesterday. This is Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, which is the most intense run-on sentence in human history. I don't know if that's true, but I'm going to say it is. Um, so we mentioned that you can kind of break it into three parts. Um, it centers on the work of the Father, and then it centers on the work of the Son, and then the work of the Spirit. And what are the things that the Father is credited with doing that we said yesterday? Some of you guys should have it in your notes. What, what does the Father do according to this sentence? Okay, adoption is one. He chose us before creation and he predestined us for adoption. Yeah, it chose before creation, predestined us, um, and he, his predestination was for adoption as sons. Okay, uh, what does the son do? Okay. Yep. Yeah, it reveals. Um, we're thinking there about truths about God. Reveal. We could put reveals spiritual truths or truths about God to us. Um, and then, what does the Spirit do? Seals us and guarantees inheritance. Yeah, seals and guarantees. Um, and that's not seal like ark ark. That is seal as in like official documentation right so um let's let's talk about this um yesterday i asked you guys like what kind of stood out to you from this and and um one thing that we saw was that the work of the father is really really past it's like um you know before creation uh type work um and then the work of the son um you know is the work two thousand years ago um, that Jesus did. So these are past tense, and then the work of the Spirit is kind of um, in present time. Um, you know, the Spirit comes upon us and um, seals us and gives us the guarantee um, in our own lived experience. So um, this is like an ongoing work. For those of us that are Christians, that sealing and that guarantee is something that's already happened in our life, but this is something that the Spirit's doing like in this day and age, whereas the Son's work is kind of being put 2,000 years ago and redeeming us by his blood and giving us access to forgiveness and revealing spiritual truth about God. And then the Father's work of choosing and predestination, uh, we see that is all the way before creation even happened. So... Um, two kind of terms that we talk about in theology, which I'm going to go ahead and introduce to you guys before we do anything else, are the terms redemption accomplished and redemption applied. Um, what these terms refer to is... Um, Jesus accomplished everything necessary for our salvation in his life, death, and resurrection. 
All right. Redemption accomplished really focuses on the work of Jesus. He did everything that was necessary for us to be saved. He died on the cross for our sin. He gave us forgiveness through his blood. He was resurrected in order to give us new life. He accomplished everything needed for redemption. But how does that redemption actually get applied to us? How does what Jesus did 2,000 years ago make a difference in our life today? That would be redemption applied. And that's primarily going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit takes the benefits of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And whenever we have faith, the Spirit comes upon us and gives us the full benefits of what Christ did in his death and resurrection. So um, this is kind of why we see this difference in time terminology in in this big run-on sentence. Um, The work of the Son is redemption being accomplished, and then the work of the Spirit in present time, in our present lives, is redemption being applied to us. Um, Yesterday, we also, um, as I kind of let you guys respond to this text, um, you brought up, you know, the stuff about the Father is a little bit confusing. All right, what does the Father do according to this text? Chose us before creation. And what was the other word? Predestined. Predestined us. Somebody read verses 3 through 6 so that we can just hear it again. So I'm going to let you guys do the work on this one. Um, It says the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. What's that mean? Yeah, before um, before the world was created, the text is saying that God chose us to be in Christ. So, um, which of these is true? You choose God or God chooses you? Both. Both are true. But which one comes first? God choosing you. And then you respond to God's choice by choosing God. All right? So, um, this is, um, you know, we, we all kind of know this already. Um, this is really just another way of saying what we read in first John chapter four, that we love God because God first loved us or the text that we've seen in Jeremiah a few different times that we've gone back and looked at. Um, God says, I have loved you with a, what type of love? Everlasting. Everlasting love. All right. So, um, Paul says, um, one of the, one of the big kind of, um, emphases of this big run-on sentence is that Paul really wants the Ephesians to be assured of God's love for them and assured of their salvation. Okay, He wants them to have a certainty that God is for them, that God loves them, and that they belong to God. And so one of the ways that Paul does this is he says, um, even before you were born, even before you were a thought in your parents' head, God chose you before he even created the world. Before creation happened, God knew you and he chose you to be in Christ so that one day you would be holy and blameless before God. 
That's a pretty incredible thought, isn't it? Before I even existed, God chose me. It says, following that, um, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Um, What does the word predestined mean? What word do you see in predestined? Destiny. Destiny. What is a destiny? Yeah, what will happen to you? And pre means before. So predestined would mean that God did what? He destined the future beforehand. Okay. Uh, in love, he predestined us. Um, well, what, did, what destiny did he plan for us beforehand? And what is the beforehand here? Like, he, it says that he chose us before what? Creation. Creation. So the destiny he's writing for us is before creation. creation. So he predestined us. Even before creation, he wrote our destiny that we would be adopted as his as his sons. So Paul's thrust here is that God the Father, before he created the world, he chose you to be in Christ. He chose you to be part of his family. He predestined your life to work out in such a way that you would be a part of his chosen people and a part of his chosen family. So for those of us that are in Christ, when did our salvation actually begin? Before creation. Before creation, God was already working for our salvation. Now, our salvation came to us at a specific time in our life, right? Like, we can honestly say there was a time before we were with God, and then a, a time once we were right with God. But our, our salvation, the outworking of our salvation, was going on before the fall, before Adam and Eve, before creation, God was already at work to plan out this salvation for us. You see how Paul is using this to try to give them some sense of assurance, right? Um, Okay. Do you have questions on that before we go on? In the mind of God, yeah. right? That's a really big idea. Yeah. Do you do anything? About, well, this might not pertain to the exact thing, and it might make us go off on a tangent. But did you do anything else before creation? Well, it says lower down in verse eleven: "In Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will." So even before creation, um, I think that that God's will was there. God's counsel about what he was going to do and all of creation was there. It was mapped out. So it wasn't just us as individuals. It was the the plan of all things. Um, You know, one of the things that Paul does throughout his writings is he always wants to say that the gospel leaves no room for what? Boasting. Boasting. How, do, uh, how does this idea that we were chosen before the foundation of the world and that God predestined us in love do away with boasting? We didn't even make the decision on that. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> before you existed, God loved you and God chose you. And he wrote out the, um, the roadmap of your life that you would become his people and his sons. Um, you had to be passive in that because you didn't what? Exist yet. Exist yet, right? This was something that God was doing entirely of himself. So if you are now in Christ and if you are now one of God's sons, it is entirely a work of God. It's supposed to promote a lot of humility. That's one of the, that's one of the goals that Paul has in teaching this idea is to promote a lot of humility. Okay. Any other questions on that? You can ask them. It's a, I'm assuming that you guys have heard these terms used before and know that they really bother some people. You can talk about that if, if you want to. We can look at it. My main goal, though, is to not spend a ton of time on it. Um, are these Bible words? They are, all right? Um, the, the idea of God's choosing and the idea of God's predestination are there in the text, all right? So um, what I would not want you guys to do leaving this class is to say, I don't believe in predestination. Um, because why should you not say that? Because it's right there, right? Um, so, um, you know, some people have different ideas about how exactly predestination works itself out, how exactly it plays out. Um, I have strong convictions on that, and other people have different strong convictions on that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a Bible word. It's something that we do have to deal with. And what I want to point out is that the way that Paul uses it is entirely positive to try to do two things. Cut off any type of pride and second of all give an assurance of salvation to say um, if you're someone who's in Jesus the father loved you and mapped out the plan of your life before you even existed before your father and mother knew who you were your heavenly father knew you and and made a plan for your good made a plan for your salvation um, you know sometimes there is this misunderstanding of the gospel that happens that goes something like this. Um, God the Father was kind of this angry, mad, wrathful um, being up in the sky, but then Jesus died on the cross and kind of convinced the Father to love us. Is that how the gospel works? No. The Father is really mad and doesn't really like you, but then Jesus dies and changes his mind, and he's like, okay, I'll tolerate him now. Is that? No. And having some idea about this choosing and this predestination, I think, helps cut against that bad idea because before the Son lived and died and was raised for us, the Father was already working for our good and for our salvation. By the way, on top of that, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So which came first, the son's coming or the father's love? Father's 
Father's love. It's not that the Son's coming made the Father love us, but instead the Son came because the Father already loved us. So one of the things that this text, this really big run-on sentence is trying to do, is show that the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are all working together for your salvation. It's not that Jesus really loves you and that the Spirit like sort of does and that the Father kind of tolerates you. It's that all three persons are working in total harmony um, out of love for you. So whenever we look at the Gospels and we see the great love of Jesus on full display, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. The love that we see revealed in Christ is not only the love of the Son, it's also the love of the Father and the love of the Spirit. Everything that the three persons of the Trinity do, they do together, including loving you and saving you and working for your good. Um, I think that we'll probably move on from that passage now because just abbreviated classes and uh, we'll start looking at chapter two tomorrow. Um, any, any, any questions? Go in once. Go in twice. Yeah. So this might cause us to go into a tangent, but it's kind of like a predestination question. So you're smart. Oh, no. Sorry. But like, um, do it. Phrase this question. So with God's plan for everyone, how exactly would you say, so, well, we have free will, right? So this is kind of a question of free will and God's plan because you said that God plans out everything. So like every single tiny thing or no? Well, it says in verse 11 um, that things happen according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what I would say is, is there a single molecule in the entire universe outside of God's control at this moment? God's in control of how many things? Everything. All right. Um, do human beings have responsibility for the actions that we take? Yes. Absolutely, we do. Are we held accountable for the actions that we take? Absolutely, we are. Um, whenever a person does something, um, think about like Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh hardened his heart and wouldn't let the Israelites go. But could God work in that? He absolutely could. Right? Could he use the free decisions Pharaoh made to accomplish his purposes? Who threw Pharaoh into the Red Sea? Pharaoh, Pharaoh did. You know who Exodus 15 says threw Pharaoh into the Red Sea, though? God. God. God orchestrated things in such a way that God is the one that is actively overthrowing Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is also the one actively overthrowing Pharaoh. So, <coughs> conceptually, I think that the idea of God's sovereignty and free will sometimes look like they're clashing. I think that if we looked at um, other examples in practical life, we see that there's a harmony there. You think about like your salvation, all right? According to the scriptures, who saves you? God. God. But if a person is saved, do they come to Jesus willingly or unwillingly? Willingly. willingly. We have all this language in scripture which says that in our natural condition as sinners, we have hard, stony hearts. Um, Romans goes so far as to say that the natural man cannot please God. No one seeks God, no, not one. What does God have to give us if we're going to love and seek God? A new heart. A new heart. So God has to work in our life. He has to give us a new heart. But if we have that new heart... Who are we going to love? God. 
So whenever you get saved, um, is it based on predest- is it is it based on God's sovereignty or is it based on your free will? Well, God is the one that's working in that situation. He's giving you the new heart. That's an act of His grace, right? But then, in harmony with it, your will is now running to Jesus willingly, right? So I think whenever we look at this, what we could say is that in a lot of, like in the situation of salvation, I think all of us could acknowledge God has to be the one at work first. And human response then follows. But that human response is, is going to be harmonious with the work of God. Okay? So, does that make sense? Does that answer? So. Um, Book of Acts, I think, is a really good place to look for this stuff to see how often the language is, um, like, you know, all of this language about God saving, God giving repentance, God granting them to hear the gospel, and, and also kind of tagging with that how willingly this is happening as well, right? So um, we can talk about that a little bit more tomorrow, but you guys